0: Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Now, I don't want to necessarily bring up back a lot of bad memories, but how, do you, how many of you remember elementary school? Anybody? Okay, some of you, yeah. No, in fact, lots of the kids that just left are really remembering elementary school. And as they're making their way and those doors are getting shut, let me uh, let me ask you: Did this ever happen? You're uh, you're in class, teacher is kind of doing some things, maybe saying something, sitting at her desk or whatever, and then she makes this announcement. You know, class, I'm going to step out for a few minutes, uh, but I will return here. But I need you to keep diligently working on your assignment, okay? And with that, they kind of back away from the little desk, they go out, you know, and everybody's like, you know, deeply into there. And then all of a sudden, you hear the steps going and fading off in the distance, and then what happens? Well, you know, as I'll tell you, my own personal experience, you know, I and a few others at a time like this would just try to be deeply engaged in the, the material, you know, trying to trying to get the most of this subject, thinking of um, the deeper aspects of what we were studying. Other of my fellow classmates um, were led into all forms of lawlessness at this point, you know. And it was distracting, you know. Next thing you know, someone's on their desk or doing something really crazy. There's all of a sudden paper takes flight in the form of airplanes or these little squares or spitwads. Uh, the little rats that we are kind of observing for science class. Next thing you know, they're being terrorized by students, you know. And and it just becomes kind of chaos, you know. Have you ever? Uh, now some of you, just a guilty look in your face, you know. I can see it, like you were probably the ringleader of all this mayhem that was taking place. And, you know, everybody's kind of doing their thing, and it's it's interesting, the closer it gets to summer, the wilder these little parties, or whatever they are called, happen. And then, all of a sudden, whether the spy wasn't watching or something happened, all of a sudden, the teacher walks in. Ah! You know, the person that's standing on their desk, you know, you know next thing you know, they're going to find themselves standing in the principal's office, right? The person that's trying to make their way to their seat, you know, like the teacher's looking and watching all this, Man, they're going to be in a hot seat. You've got a few questions coming. Maybe the teacher decides, how much progress did you make on what I asked you to do? And so they actually start going around, and, and you pay the consequences if you have been totally goofing off. I, it's distracting. I know many of you don't even know what I'm talking about there. And, so, and I don't get the idea that I was totally, fully engrossed there. I, I was observing enough to be able to relay this information to you, right? Well, you know, how are you doing? It's one thing when the teacher says, I'm coming back. You see, when the teacher walks out of the classroom, what happens? You see, the true colors of the students are actually put on display, right? They're, you know, when the teacher walks out and all of a sudden the accountability is gone, the authority is gone. And so what happens? The kids just go wild. They start displaying their true colors. What would they really do if the teacher wasn't there? And there it is, live in action. You can record it. You can watch it. You can remember it. But that's one thing about when the teacher leaves. But let me just ask you this. Jesus said, I'm coming back. I'm going to be gone for a period of time, but I will return. What are your true colors? How you doing? Standing on the desk? Or you, are you at the work? In order, we've made our way to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 39. Jesus said, that's it. He said in verse 39, chapter 23, for I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I am going to return. And do you know how the book ends? Do you know how the Bible ends? Has anybody ever read the end of the book? It's always a good idea. If you want. do, you guys know how it ends. It ends with Jesus making this statement in the very the second to the last verse at the very end. He says this. Behold, I am coming soon. Yes, I am coming quickly. I am going to return. I want you to be ready and prepared. And so when you come to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is telling us what that end will look like. And what will be the sign of his coming? And just to review, in Matthew chapter 20 and 4, in verse 3, his disciples ask him two key questions. They want to know when these things will happen, when will be the end of the time, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. And if you remember, last week, verses 4 through 35, we actually kind of walked through that, where Jesus addresses the second question first. What will be the sign of Jesus coming in the end of the age? And he goes on to explain what this will look like. Now, just to review, there are a variety of different views on this. Some people think this is all in the past. Many think that you know, all this happened in 70 A.D. There are some that feel like, well, in 70 A.D. with the burning of Jerusalem and the killing of one million, one hundred thousand Jews. Some of what Jesus talked about was filled there and some is future. OK, so there's a preterist position, a partial preterist. And then there are some that believe this is all future, that this is going to happen in the future. When Jesus speaks you, beginning in verse five, he is actually telling them a prophetic you. And you see this with the prophets. They started addressing what like a people to come and speaking to them as if they were presently there. And this was common in prophetic literature. And that's the position that I take from my study of the scriptures. I believe that what takes place beginning in Matthew, chapter 24, beginning in verse five, four and four and five, is Jesus is speaking about what is to come. And so we actually looked at that. We looked at what he said. There are going to be preliminary trials, verses 4 through 8. I take it that what's happening here is that after Jesus actually snatches away his people, it's a position, it's a truth called the rapture, that there's going to begin this seven-year tribulation period. Now, just to kind of review a little bit of theology, and it comes in the topic of eschatology, First Thessalonians chapter four makes it real clear, as do other passages, that God is going to actually take away his people and remove them. So they're not going to experience his wrath. Like in First Thessalonians five, verse nine, it says that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When Jesus addresses the churches, like in Revelation chapter three, when he addresses specifically the church at Philadelphia in verse 10, he actually says that I'm going to keep you from this day of tribulation. You are going to be spared. I'm going to actually take you away. Because when God begins this 70th week, as spoken of by Daniel, the church isn't going to go through this wrath and tribulation. It's similar to like when the United States, before we bombed Kuwait or Yugoslavia, do you know what we did? We told our people, you come home and we got him out of there and then we unleashed our judgmental bombing power upon these these countries god's going to do the same thing he's going to pull out his people And judgment is going to fall. And why do we, now this is all like, what in the world are you talking about here? Well, first of all, you wanted to pay attention from last week. But there's going to be a key event that Jesus speaks of in verse 24, beginning in verse 15, that we know that Jesus is speaking of Daniel's 70th week, that 70th week of years, that seven-year period of time, because he references it in verse 15. He says, there's going to be the preliminary trials that are coming. That's going to be the first three and a half years. And then there's going to be this perilous tribulation that is going to be marked by the event of verse 15, where you see the abomination of desolation. That's directly from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. There is an event that's going to take place. This Antichrist, who for the first three and a half years is like Israel's protector and says, fine, you go ahead and worship and do whatever you want. But three and a half years into that, just as the scriptures have prophesied, he's going to turn on the Jews and say, you know what? I think I want worship to myself. After all, this is Satan's Christ. He is the Antichrist. He sets up the abomination of desolation because he calls worship to himself. And don't get me wrong. That is what Satan wants. He wants the allegiance and the worship for you to be occupied with with him. And so he's got a variety of strategies to keep you from Christ and focused on him and his agenda. Well, that's all going to come unleashed. And so you find in verses nine through twenty two, there is this perilous tribulation that's going to take place on the earth. Jesus spells it out. And this is what's actually recorded in Revelation chapter six. Through 19, you got the breaking of the seals, and then you got the trumpets, and you've got the bulls. He actually outlines and tells you what's going to take place. And all of this is prior to the return of Jesus. And so beginning in verse 23 through 31, he actually talks about his return. and he, And he tells you what it's going to look like. Verse 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to be widespread. It'll be universally known and he will be seen coming from the heavens with his armies. OK, so that is what is to come. And that was the question that was being asked. So when is this going to happen? That was a review from last week. But when is this going to happen? When is this tribulation going to take place? Do you want to know the answer to that question? Anybody curious? Yeah. guess I, today I'm glad you're here because I'm going to tell you when it's going to happen. Ready? It's fact, it's recorded right here in Scripture. Verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows. How about that? Not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Jesus says, no one will know the time of my return. Is he coming back? Is there going to be this series of seven years of tribulation? Look at the preceding verse. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I guarantee it. I I stake my credibility on this. Heaven and earth will pass away before my words will pass away. This will happen. And he says, no one, though, will know when will come, when I'm coming. In fact, he says, I do not come. Now, how is that possible? Jesus is God, right? And if he's fully omniscient, how is it that he didn't know? Okay? Well, that is because when Jesus came to the earth, he actually set aside the exercise of his divine attributes. And at times, even the attribute of omniscience, because he fully yielded himself to the Father. Jesus is fully God and fully man, fully human. And there are times that he simply didn't exercise his divine attributes because he laid them aside so he'd enter into humanity and fulfill all righteousness. And so when Jesus is on the earth, he said, even I have not had privilege of that information, but I am going to return. Now, why do you think God didn't actually reveal the exact date? Could he have? Could, could he have, like, just like God actually predicted exactly when the Messiah would come, when he'd actually enter into Jerusalem? Remember that from the prophecy from Daniel? He could have, but do you know why he didn't? Because humanity's like this. If we knew the exact date, no one would take Jesus Christ overly seriously until about one day before his coming, right? And Jesus says, it's not going to be that way. I want you ready. Now, it's kind of like the uh, folks in Pompeii and, you know, where the Mount Vesuvius was, had that big volcano in AD 79. You know, and this is all pretty well-known, very well-documented. The people that were living in Pompeii and Herculaneum, they actually saw the smoke rising from this volcano. They actually had earth tremors that they recorded. They knew that the volcano was going to blow. But you know what? That really didn't affect their life. Because it blew and it got completely covered with ash. And as we are continue doing excavations, you find people basically living just life, totally oblivious to the signs that were there. They find the rich people, they were bathing in oil. You had slaves and servants that were working. You had soldiers that were on guard. They knew it would blow, but you know what? It didn't affect their life. Jesus is in his following verses here. He's saying, I don't want that to happen to you. So he says, verse 36, you do not know the day nor the hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. But let me tell you, I am going to return. That's really interesting. Do you see that? Does everybody have verse 36 in their Bible? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty plain. Jesus makes it very clear. And yet that does not stop people from then assigning a date or making a prophecy or proclaiming that Jesus is going to come back at a certain time. Uh, There are literally hundreds of people that have made predictions about when Jesus Christ is going to return or the end of the age. Let me just give you a few that you're probably familiar with. There's a guy by the name of Charles Russell. He falls under the teachings, the false ones, of a guy by the name of William Miller. And he goes, you know what? I think I'll start my own little group. And so he founded his own organization. Uh, we know it as, and he called it the Jehovah's Witness. Okay? Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses, in 1914, Russell said that Jesus Christ is going to return. Widely publicized. They created a magazine. They got it all over the place. That didn't happen. That didn't stop them. So they said, well, it's 1918. 1908, then 1920, then 1925, then 1941. Oh, How about we go a little farther out? How about 1975? And then their final one that they made was 1994. Even though this verse is clear in here, it didn't stop them from doing that. Here's one that uh, I would say most of you probably are pretty familiar with. In 1992, there's a guy by the name of David Koresh with the Branch Davidian Group. And he sets up camp at their place, their commune at Mount Carmel, which is not in Waco, Texas. Okay? I do not know how the rest of the world has got this wrong, including all the press, but do you know the nearest town next to where this all happened? Does anybody know? Elk. That's right, it's Elk, Texas. Okay? But uh, anyway, he sets up his compound, and what he does is he changes the name. In fact, they changed the name to be Ranch Apocalypse. And he then starts making the deliberate predictions that in 1995, the end of the world is going to happen and the apocryphal battles are going to start at his place right there at the commune. And he's prepared for it. And then on April 10th, 1993, 76 members die. And I think we're all pretty familiar with some of the details as a result of the deliberately set fire. But he was proclaiming, only himself with some messianic innuendos, but he's saying the end's going to start right here. At my ranch. Let me give you another guy, Jack Van Impe, televangelist on TV. He's made so many predictions I couldn't even list them all, so I didn't. Okay? He's got all sorts of in fact his he's now he's come to a position he says he no longer claims that he can know the exact date because he's been wrong so many times, but he's recently pointed that he thinks it's gonna be in 2012. And it could be. Alright? We don't know. Then there's another guy, this guy made a lot of waves last year, Harold Camping, okay? The guy had some ways of getting out his word. He believed that May 21st, 2011, Jesus would return. So he used his 55 radio stations. He advertised on 6,000 billboards all across the United States that Jesus is going to return on that date. And then, of course, what happened? May 21st went and went gone and Jesus not returning. Turn. You would think he would learn because this isn't the first time he did this or pulled a little trick like this because he had prophesied in September 6th, 1994. He proclaimed that Jesus would return and he didn't. Now, All this to say, Jesus is perfectly clear. We do not know the day nor the time, but we do know that he's coming. In fact, he says, so this is what you need to do. He says, verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. You see that in verse 37? When the Son of Man returns, this day of the Lord, this seven-year period of wrath that's going to come upon the earth, it's going to be like in the days of Noah. And what was it like in the days of Noah? Well, Verse 38, for in the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, because it started raining. And verse 39, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so Jesus says, you know what? It's going to be like the days of Noah. You see, the days of Noah, Noah was proclaiming that God was going to judge the world. And he's actually building an ark, which was completely weird because it had never actually rained on the earth. And they're like, what are you doing? You're on dry land. You're not not even by water. And God is going to judge the earth. And I'm building this ark. He told me to do so. And now is the time to repent and to realize that you were made for God and to return to him and to live for him. And for a 100 years, he's building the ark. People are laughing. him. He was The joke of society. And that, of course, is until it started raining. Noah and his family and all the little animals get on the ark and God shuts the door and judgment comes. Who's taken in judgment? All those who willfully plowed on in unbelief. And Jesus says that's how it's going to be when the son of man returns. There are going to be those who will be safely in the ark, trusting in Christ. They will believe God and his word. They'll be rescued. The rest, judgment is going to come. And it's going to come by virtue, by means of the tribulations that he had just outlined. And he says, they're, they're just eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. You know, hey, what's wrong with that? Is it wrong to eat or drink? I sure hope not, right? I'm in tough shape here. What about marrying or giving in marriage? Is there a problem with that? No, there's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, those things are all actually given to us by God. The book of Ecclesiastes says you ought to enjoy three things in life. Your wife, your work, and your food. Awesome. All right. I like it. Is there anything wrong with the things? No. You know why he's referencing these? It's not those things were wrong and they were doing them. It's because they were so occupied with life on the horizontal. They never thought or believed in God's message. They didn't set their sights on Jesus. They never thought vertical thoughts. They were just occupied, the mundane here and now, even if they were religious and judgment, Jesus says, is going to come. He says, verse 40, that's what this is going to look like. Then there are going to be two men in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. What he's saying there is this is not the rapture where one's going to be taken. Actually, no, let's stay with what Jesus is saying. One's going to be taken in judgment. God will bring judgment. The other is going to pass through, going to make it through this tribulation. Why? Because they're prepared and they're believing in Jesus. They're going to enter his millennial, his thousand-year kingdom. You find that in Revelation chapter 20, in six verse, in six times and seven verses. He says, a thousand-year reign of Christ. Those who are not judged during the seven-year tribulation, they're going to enter into the millennial kingdom. So now let me ask you, how do you know... If you are really ready for Christ's return. Are you? How do you know? I mean, I just want you to know. I believe everything that Jesus said is going to happen. This isn't just like, oh, that's good. I got my theology in order. This is a matter of eternal life and death. Do you really know that you are ready? Well, how do you know? Well, he actually spells that out. How do you know if you're really ready for Christ's return? Well, look at verse 42. Jesus says, therefore, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Let me tell you how you can be absolutely ready. You see what he says in verse 42? He says, your Lord. You see, it is all has to do with your relationship with Jesus Christ. Is he your Lord? Do you trust him? Have you repented, change of mind, change of heart, truly trusting Jesus Christ for salvation? Or are you going it alone? Do you, call it, do you just give lip service to Jesus when it's convenient or it's popular? Or do you absolutely mean that he's the Lord of my life and I want him and nothing else? I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. I am fully yielded to him. That's what the word, word Lord means. It means Master. And if you were a slave and you had a master, you did whatever the master did because you wanted the joy of the master to be fulfilled. Is he your Lord? Do you recognize who he is? That he's God, the Messiah, the king, the everlasting one. And do you respond to him by faith? Are you ready for his true return? Let me ask you. Do you really follow him as Lord? Like this past week. Were you trusting Jesus? Are you trusting him in Christ alone for your salvation and for your life? Let me give you a second. Not only are you following him as Lord, but if you want to know, if are you really ready for Christ's return? Are you looking for his return? Did he see what he said in verse 42? Therefore, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. He says, but what you want to do is you want to be ready. And it's the idea of watching out, being alert, has the idea that not only are you looking out, but that you are prepared. You're prepared for his coming. So he says, let me give you a little story. Verse 43. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have followed his. He would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So what he's saying here is like, you know, you're ready when you're like the head of a household and you recognize that I could potentially get broken into. Let me ask you, what was the last thing you did before you left your house or your apartment today? What would you do? You locked the door, right? Why? Because you don't want some crazy person just breaking into your house and tailing, taking all your stuff, Right. You don't want that to happen, so what do you to do? You lock the door. Hey, before you walked in this church, this building here. So I'm what was the last thing you did in the parking lot? Remember? You took out that key and boop, boop right? You locked the doors, right? You don't want anybody breaking in your car at church of all things, you know what I'm saying? Right? Why? You just you're playing it safe. You are what we call prepared. You're ready. Well that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to come like a thief in the night. If you're foolish. Don't be prepared. Don't even think about it. But if you believe me, you're ready. You are following me as Lord. You are looking for my return. Looking means we are awaiting his return. We are actively involved in what God has entrusted to us. But we are looking and we are prepared for the return of Jesus. And he said, I can come at any time. There is going to be no more preceding signs before this 70th, day, 70th week than has already been given. There's, there's nothing that we're specifically waiting for. It could happen at any time. It could happen this afternoon. Could you imagine? We preach on this text and Christ actually returns. We don't know when it will happen, but we better be ready. And let me hear the third aspect of people who are ready. He's going to make this is this is key. It's actually one of the highlights of the gospel of Matthew. And that is you are engaging in his work. Look at verse forty five. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom the master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. The more I've studied the Gospel of Matthew, I keep getting drawn back to these verses. This is what Jesus is after. He is bringing about a transformation of people whom he's regenerating. He's drawing people to himself. They are understanding, following him as Lord, and their lives are reoriented to his agenda. They are looking to accomplish his work, and he says they are faithful and sensible. And whatever God has entrusted to you, he wants you to be faithful and sensible with your family, with your resources, with your time, with your talents, because the faithful and sensible one is when the return of Jesus happens, they're the ones that have great joy. Because not only are you going to have the blessings of serving God with joy now, but in the future, you're going to have even greater responsibility. In fact, that's what he says. I will put him in charge of all his possessions. Why? Because you proved to be faithful in this life. I mean, think of it. If you're a business owner and you got someone that's faithful with a little, what are you going to do? You're going to give them more because they have proven to be trustworthy. On the other hand, there is another group of people. And look at this. He says, verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, you know what? My master, he's not coming for a long time. And verse forty nine. And he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. And the master of that slave will come on a day that he does not expect him at an hour, which he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with all the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see. There's really only two groups, those who are trusting him as Lord. They are expecting his return and they are engaged in his work. Or those who are totally blowing this off, like they don't care or maybe they've heard or they wholesale reject it. Let me give you the huge root awakening that humanity will face. They're going to face exactly what Jesus said. You are actually going to be held accountable for your time What God gave you, your wealth, your resources, your relationships, your breath, your life, they actually belong to God and he entrusted them to you. If you're a non-believer and you go, hey, man, that wasn't my game. I didn't believe that stuff. God's going to say, I gave these things to you. Whether you believed or not, you are held accountable for what you did with what I entrusted you. And whether you were in church every Sunday and you blew off what Christ has said or you never showed up because you could care less. You wanted to go on your willful disbelief and disobedience. You'll be held accountable for your life, your abilities, your wealth and your possessions. And what Jesus is driving at here is he says, if that is you, you've rejected my son. You've rejected my message of the gospel. You will not engage. You will face judgment. You see. He's not saying that you earn your salvation by persevering and doing good and engaging the work. What he's revealing is this. Your actions reveal your nature. Your actions reveal your nature. And if you are truly regenerate, you know Christ, you're trusting in him. The power of the Holy Spirit resides in you. The Spirit of God is prompting us and actually accomplishing his fruit bearing work in your life. You will engage because Actions reveal nature. On the other hand, if you don't believe or if you're giving lip service to Jesus, but you truly are not trusting him oh, and, and for salvation in Christ alone, you're kind of doing a game. Your actions will be your nature will be revealed in your actions or your lack of following through with what the master said. And he said, judgment will come. And if you want to see what judgment is, verse 51, the idea of cutting in pieces This is literally in in ancient times they would judge people by actually cutting them in two, or it may actually refer to them being completely cut off from their people. He says you're going to be assigned to the place of hypocrites, in a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth because you did not believe. So what what will it be for you? By the way, you're not called to be popular. You're called to be obedient. You're called to just simply follow the master whom you're trusting. Now, what happened with this, this second guy here? The one that gets judged because he was out drinking and partying and abusing folks. What happened? There was a heart issue. Because it all gets started with our heart and our heart response to Jesus Christ. So, you know, I think about this. I'm like, why, why would that guy kind of knowing these things are going to happen, why would he reject? There's a heart issue, but let me tell you something else. They never saw Jesus for who he is. Jesus is lovely and he's gracious. He's merciful and mighty. He offers forgiveness and life. There, we are designed for God. Whether you recognize that or not, he designed you for himself. You can only find life, joy, and purpose in him. And yet we have all these idols, whether it be pleasure whether it be power, because you see these things in this evil guy, he's abusing people, he's drinking, he's partying, he's, he's totally rejecting. Whether you're trying to find life in just your pleasurable experiences, your, your 401k, whatever it is, those things can't give you life. They're going to leave you bankrupt. Life is found in Christ. And so Jesus says, I want you ready. Now, one of the questions you've got to ask is, why, why the delay? Why is it that why is the Jesus delaying? What's the deal? Why does he just come now? Because he could. Why not? Let me you two reasons. One, God is waiting for evil to run its course. When you look at Revelation chapter 14, specifically in verses 15 and 16, there is a scene there where they're waiting to reap the harvest of the earth. Judgment is to come. And the statement is made, we're not going to do it until basically evil has run its course. God in his sovereignty is allowing evil to run its course. The regenerate and those who believe will see the power of grace and all that they've been saved from. But God is going to allow evil to run its course because he is greater than evil. And one day he's going to judge it. Let me give you the second reason why the delay. And that is that the Lord is waiting for all those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life to be saved and to believe. The fullness of the Gentiles will come. Those Jews who will believe, will believe and trust and will be saved. And God is waiting. And that process is happening. It's happening even today. And so, friends, you and I, we've got inside information. You know, on the stock market, if you've got inside information and you start trading on it, you pull like a Martha Stewart, what happens to you? What happens? Right there, you go to prison. That's illegal. God says, when it comes to my son's coming, I've given you inspired inside information and I demand that you act upon it, that your life is in tune to what I have revealed to you, because that is why I have given it to you. I want you to be involved in my work. I want you trusting in my son. I want you looking for his return. And I want you engaged in my work. So what is the work the Master has called us to do? Let me just put it real simply to you. First of all, it's the work of evangelism. God has left us here to proclaim his gospel, the message that human beings, though sinful, can be reconciled and experience life with God because by the virtue of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, he fulfilled all righteousness by living in as a human, fully man, fully God, fulfilled all the laws demands. He died, he was sacrificed on our behalf, and he rose again. And he, because he's fully man and fully God, paid the penalty for our sin. And he takes his righteousness and transfers it to the account of wicked sinners like me and you when we believe in Christ. But how will people know about Jesus unless you and I go and tell them? Right? Romans chapter 10, verse 13 Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he asked a logical question. Well, how in the world are they going to do that? How will they believe upon him unless you and I will go and speak? Let me give you another work that God has called us to do. Not only are we to do the work of evangelism, we're to do the work of discipleship. And that is when Jesus ends the Gospel of Matthew he makes the Great Commission. He says, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all the nations. I want you to teach them. I want you to baptize them. I want you to prepare them for my coming. And I want my people deep and mature in my relationship with him. God does not want to keep you at a superficial status. He does not want you to slip into complacency. He wants you to experience the depth of his love, his character, he wants maturity in your life. In fact, Paul's mission statement, in Colossians 1, and 29, is this. I want to present every man complete, teleos in Christ, in every respect. Your thinking, your discernment, how you are in tune with keeping control of your emotions, that the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and all of those virtues are being demonstrated in your life. I want people to know how to live with their families and to love their spouse and lead their kids and take an active stance in our community and be leaders in a church. I want you mature. Let me give you the third work. We're not only doing the work of evangelism, the work of discipleship, but the work of representing Christ in the world. After all, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And furthermore, you are the light of the world. My light shines through your life and this is divine design that we reflect the character of God, his love, his mercy. We care for the needy and the broken, the poor and the marginalized. Those are the recipients of injustice. We step in. We represent to the world what transformation in Christ looks like. This is God's divine design that we live and look different because it is the work that he's entrusted because we are loving people to the Savior. There's a fable about um, these three apprentice devils that were about to try to finish up their apprenticeship. Apparently, in this fable, they go before Satan because they're going to disclose their plans to tempt and to ruin men. And the first one said, you know, to Satan, I'm going to do this. I will tell them that there is no God. And Satan said, what? That's not going to elude too many. For they know there is a God. Well, then the second apprentice, he comes up, comes to Satan, and he says, you know what? I got it. I'm going to tell them there is no hell. Satan answered, you know, you're not going to see anybody like that. Men know that there is a hell for sin. Well, this third apprentice, apparently in this fable, comes before Satan and said, you know what? I I'm want to do. I'm going to tell them there is no hurry. Satan said, you go, because you will ruin men. By the thousands. Are you ready? Are you ready? Jesus said this. We must work the works of him who sent me while we still have the day. For night is coming when no one shall work. Are you ready? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing text. You have told us that not only will your son, that your son will return. But you have told us how we are to live in light of the coming of our Savior. So, Father, I look at my own life and I see a lot of inadequacy, a lot of failure. Thank you for the cleansing that is in Jesus. In fact, I'd imagine all of us at some point see we're perhaps more occupied by the things of this world than the coming of our Savior. So we confess it as sin and we experience the cleansing of Jesus once again, you've recalibrated our life to the truth of your scripture, and by the power of your spirit, we live out a life that is holy and expecting your son. And so we pray in Jesus.